There's nothing like, it's nothing like your love It's nothing like it, it's nothing like it It's nothing like, nothing like your love There's nothing like it, and there's nothing like it There's nothing like, it's nothing like your love Oh, there's nothing like it, and there's nothing like it There's nothing like, nothing like your love Testimonies of God's love in this room. There are stories in people's hearts of His love and what God did for them, what God did for you. Wow. And if you want a testimony of this love and a story of this love that you can remember ages and ages to come.
Morning, family, and so wonderful to have this opportunity to share with you. I wonder if you've ever had to wait for something, something that you really wanted to do, something that you were desiring, or even had to wait for something that you really needed or wanted. I remember the first time in the late 1990s when I had opportunity to travel for the first time internationally and leave the country's borders. Uh, it was also the first time that I was actually ever going to get to fly on an aeroplane in my life. And so I remember waiting for that. It took you know, some months of planning and months of saving and had opportunity to travel then. But I remember vividly waiting for that with eager anticipation. I also remember times in my life when I had to wait for God to come through for me, both internally and personally, but also just for breakthrough in circumstances and situations in families and, and that journey of waiting, waiting for God to come through, waiting for God to come and change things in only the way that he can change things. I wonder about you. Have you waited for something eagerly? Are you waiting for God to come and break through in your life, for God to come and change, to God, for God to bring a release? Maybe you're waiting for something beyond yourself in your family, for salvations. Maybe you're waiting for God to move in a part of our city or in a ministry or in a given situation. And I think God is moving and God is promising to move. But it's important that we wait well. And so the title and the, and the topic of my message this morning is Wait and See What God is Going to Do. Wait and see what God will do. Wait and see what God will do. And as we launch here in the East into our week of prayer and fasting, it's an apt topic and the topic, as you've just heard, is about waiting. The theme for the week is about waiting. And so we want to speak into that a little bit this morning, but I'm going to pick up where, with the scripture that Pastor Louis used as his main text last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible or a device, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I'm going to be using the NIV translation today. 
Um, but before we get to the specific verses that Pastor Louis used, which was verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to back up a little bit and go to verse 8. Uh, just I think it gives us a great run into this passage. Uh, sorry, not verse 8, verse 6. Gives us a great run into this passage. And, and even before verse 6, it's that uh, famous uh, favorite charismatic scripture where it says, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words or with fine sounding arguments, but I came to you to demonstrate the power of God so that your faith might rest in the power of God. And so Paul there is actually speaking to the, the Corinthian bias, the Corinthian cultural preference for Greek rhetoric and fine sounding arguments. And he wanted them to very clearly understand that their Christian faith wasn't just another Greek philosophy or a Greek teaching. It was something completely different. And so he starts expounding and explaining that in verse 6. And so let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. We're going to read from verse 6 to 8, and then we'll pick up again where we were from last week. So Paul writes and he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden. Now, yeah, he's specifically referring to how God would accomplish salvation. That's the mystery, how God would accomplish salvation, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. They couldn't grasp God's wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now we understand in God's providence that was his plan for Jesus to be crucified. But what Paul is contrasting here is that God's wisdom is really different from the wisdom of, the, of this age. You see, the wisdom of this age is based on power. The wisdom of this age is based on manipulation. The wisdom of this age is about gaining an advantage so you can exploit people. The wisdom of this age is based on human ingenuity or maybe human cleverness. Perhaps it's a philosophy. That is what the wisdom of this age is based on. And Paul so vividly points and accurately points out in this passage, it's coming to nothing because it's originated by men in their fallenness and in that state. And so God promises salvation and deliverance, and he promises that that will come through Jesus Christ. And this is unimaginable that God would bring about salvation this way. He didn't come with the best argument for the Greek intellectual mind. He didn't come in power and glory, which would have satisfied many of the Jewish messianic expectations. God comes and in his wisdom, he uses weakness and he uses the suffering of his son, Jesus, on the cross. He uses the weakness and the suffering of a crucified Messiah, of a crucified king to overcome sin and to accomplish salvation for us, unimaginable goodness. And that was Pastor Louis' topic last week. And so I just I would encourage you, if you haven't been able to listen to that message, it's, it's on YouTube and SoundCloud, please catch up. It's a critical message for our church at this time. But God's wisdom is simple, that through the crucified Messiah, he will pay the price for our sins and make salvation and deliverance available for everyone, simple yet profound, but not like the wisdom of this world. And so after Paul has explained this a little bit, he gets to the text that Pastor Louis used last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And just to remind us, let, let's read it together again. Paul writes, he says, However it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has done 
for those, sorry, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. These are the things that God has revealed by his spirit. And the spirit searches all things, the deep things of God, meaning there that the spirit knows what God wants. The spirit knows what God is planning. And because we have the spirit living in us as believers, this has been revealed to us. But the word that God gave Pastor Louis for this year is that God wants to do unimaginable good for you. God wants to do unimaginable good for us. Unimaginable in the sense that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind can conceive of the good things that God wants to do. For those who love him, for, and we know that those who love God obey him, so it's for those who are following God faithfully. And we note also just here that it's revealed by his spirit. Now, as I was preparing for this message, one of the things we always teach um, our students and th- uh, of Bible and things is that when you Using the New Testament, and, and there's a quote from the Old Testament, it's always good to go back and check that quote and the original context of that quote. The reason being is that it often gives us a fuller or a better understanding of the passage. Sometimes Paul uses those quotes and he just baptizes them through the cross and he makes them richer and fuller. But this phrase in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 where Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has imagined, is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 64. It's, in our Bibles, it's part of verse 4. But Paul takes it out there. And so what I want us to do, and if you can do this in your Bibles and devices, is turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, I want us to just read the first nine verses in that chapter because I think it helps expand this idea that Paul is trying to land uh, in our hearts and in our minds uh, for the Corinthians and for us today. And so as you turn to Isaiah 64, just in context, this part of Isaiah is quite triumphant. It speaks about what God is going to do in the future, but it also has these contrasts between the good things God wants to do and the people who follow God faithfully and truly, and then people who don't and people who are wicked and who turn away from God. And so that's kind of the broader picture of what's happening in you. And so let's drop in on Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1, and I'm going to read uh, different sections and just comment, kind of provide a running commentary as I go to help us understand the context a little bit better. So the prophet Isaiah writes and he says, oh, and he's speaking to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did, past tense, awesome things that we did not expect, You came down and the mountains trembled before you. What's in Isaiah's mind as he he writes this? Now, he's using language from Exodus, particularly if you want to look around chapter 18, again, chapter 24. And whenever the Old Testament prophets, and even in the New Testament, when they use this Exodus language, there's always this expectation, this connotation of salvation and deliverance, because that's what God did for the nation of Israel when he rescued them out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And that's the picture that Isaiah has in mind as he writes this. It's like he's picturing Moses and the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and God literally rending the heavens and coming down on the mountain in fire and smoke and the whole earth trembling and the nations taking note that the God of Israel who'd saved them out of Egypt was there to rescue them and to deliver them from their oppression. You know, when I read that phrase, the water boiling, I don't think it was in Isaiah's mind, but it comes to my mind, I'm reminded in 1 Kings 18 of where Elijah has that confrontation of the prophets of Baal and, you know, they stack up their sacrifices and they pour water on it and, and you know, they make it wet and then they, the prophets of Baal 
you know, do their thing and try and get Baal to ignite the sacrifice and it fails miserably for them. And then Elijah prays and God sends down fire from heaven and the water that's drenched around his sacrifice, the, the motive water is all just bubbles and so it's like bubbles and evaporates. So it's like God revealing himself in mighty power, God announcing himself to his enemies. And so Isaiah brings this picture to mind saying, remember when God did this for us in Sinai, it's important for his original readers to hear this. God wants to come down and be with his people again. And I think we're living in an age, as I, as I watch things happening in the world, where many nations and many people that have just dismissed God, written him off as irrelevant for their lives, they need to take note of the acts of God in history. And I think the acts of God that he wants to do in and through his church at this time. And so we carry on reading in Isaiah 64 from verse 4. Isaiah writes of these conjured this Exodus language and this, the concepts of salvation and God's act of deliverance. And he says, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen. And this is the part that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now, Paul doesn't quote that part of the verse. Comment about that now. Let's read verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we, referring, yeah, as I refers to Israel's history, to Israel's past, but when we continue to sin against them, against God's ways, you are angry. And so Isaiah asks this very poignant question, how can we be saved? So let's first talk a little bit about verse 4. Isaiah remembers that God acted, that he came down and he acted on behalf of the people of Israel, when they were caught in slavery in Egypt, when they could not save themselves, when they were powerless to rescue themselves, God comes down and he acts on their behalf and introduces this idea, Isaiah, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This was Isaiah's challenge in his day that the nation of Israel was under threat and would be under threat in future. But the, the rulers of his day, the people of his day were trusting on human alliances. They were looking to other nations to save them and to support them and to rescue them. And God speaks through Isaiah to the nation. He says, if you'll wait for me, I will save you. If you love me, I will save you. And so Isaiah notes this about God, that in a way at that time that was unimaginable, unexpected, no one could have conceived of it. No eye could see, no ear could hear. God acted and brought salvation for the nation. He brought it for those people who gladly, joyfully do what is right who remember his ways. Now, here it's referring specifically to the covenant, the old covenant, as you know, we would find perhaps in Deuteronomy recorded for us there, the, the Mosaic covenant. So as, as the nation of Israel followed that, God acted on their behalf. But in Israel's history, Isaiah acknowledges that this was not the case. The people had turned away from God. They'd stopped walking in his ways. They were not gladly doing what was right anymore. And so they fall away. And actually, in God's anger, as a consequence of breaking the covenant, he sends them into exile. Now, not anger out of pettiness. Anger out of that they've chosen second best. Anger that they've chosen other gods, that they've chosen sin instead of himself. So it's kind of that angry disappointment that some of us as parents sometimes have experienced as well. So God's anger, he sends them into exile. And Isaiah's writing, he goes, now exile's coming and people are going to be in exile. How can we? Be saved, Isaiah wonders. So it's interesting for me as we're waiting on God, it's not a 
passive waiting. It's the waiting of those who gladly do right to remember God's ways. But Israel's history had taught them a, a different lesson. They'd abandoned the covenant. So how can they be saved? And what we know on this side of Isaiah's prophecies and with historical hindsight is that we know that God acted again in history. God acted by sending Jesus Christ to come and save humanity, to rescue us from our sins. Like he acted to rescue ancient Israel from slavery in Egypt, he sent Jesus to die for us on the cross, to rescue us from our sins, to deliver us from our selfishness and self-righteousness that we developed. And so how, do we be, how, do, how, how can we be saved? God acts. God makes a way for us to be saved. Isaiah carries on in verse 6 and he, and he writes as follows. He says, reflecting on Israel at the time, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are shriveled up like a leaf, like the wind, sweep, and like the wind it sweeps our sins away. No one calls on your, on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and you have given us over to our sins. You see, when we choose, you'll notice in the, in the strap here that I've underlined our righteous acts. When we choose to try and establish our own righteous acts, when we try and save ourselves, then it becomes like God is hidden from us because he's acted in history, he's provided salvation, he's provided deliverance, but we turn away from that. Therefore, it's like God is hidden to us. And he gives us over to our sins because those are the choices we've made. And so Isaiah is reflecting of Israel at that time, perhaps even in the post-exile period. But I think it's true of the human condition. Historically, presently, all of us have turned away from God and we try and establish our own righteousness. We try and do our own good deeds to build our own merit, to sort ourselves out, to fix ourselves, to fix our condition. And Isaiah says here very poignantly and very clearly, when we do this, when it's our own acts of righteousness, when it's self-generated righteousness, it's like a filthy rag and it just gets blown away by the wind. You could be the most famous philanthropist. You could give millions to good causes. But if you do it apart from God, to earn your own merit, to establish your own credentials, before God, it's like a filthy rag and it will just get blown away like the wind. And when we do this, it's like God is hidden from us. But this is not where Isaiah ends in this mournful place of despair. Verse 8 in Isaiah 64 starts with just a little word, three letters, yet. But it's a fantastic yet. It's a yet that brings the reality of how things really are back into perspective. And so even though the nation of Israel has turned away from God, yet. You see, yet God has not changed. Let's read the text together. Isaiah 64, verse 8 and 9. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure. Lord, do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Isaiah speaks there of his nation. Yet, this brings the reality back into focus. Despite our trying to attain righteousness on our own and to do good on our own, yet despite us turning away from God, yet the Lord remains a good father. Not an absent father, not a distant father, not a vengeful, spiteful, disdainful father. 
a good and loving father. And in the hands of the good and loving father, we are clay, individually and corporately. And God molds us and makes us, and he shapes Christ in us, as we learn from the New Testament perspective. And it's out of this place where we are in the hands of God that I believe in this week of prayer and fasting, we can pray again and say, Lord, look upon us. Lord, look upon me in this week. Turn your eyes, the eyes of the good and loving Father, your eyes of favor, your eyes of goodness. Look upon me. Because you see, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's what Isaiah so clearly tells us. For those who put their trust in him, who gladly do what he wants, who gladly remember his ways, who don't do their own acts of righteousness, but who rely and trust on God, God acts on behalf. So we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 2 now, but what does it mean to wait on God? And I'd like just to reflect from what we've learned in Isaiah, but before we do that, I want to just come back to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 24, and start talking a little bit about where Jesus told us, told his disciples and us to, to wait. In Luke 24, verse 49 to 53, it's the last few verses in the Gospel of Luke, and he's going to pick up on this idea again in Acts chapter 1 that we're going to look at in a couple of minutes. Jesus commands his disciples to wait. Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city, wait in Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. So there's a purpose that Jesus introduces to the waiting. It carries on in Luke and it says, when Jesus had led them out of the city to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So that's the ascension of Jesus. Then the disciples worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So while they're waiting, they're continuing their worship. They're in this place of, uh, in the temple. The, the posture of their hearts while they wait is worship. The posture of their hearts while they wait is expectant joy. And so they set their focus and their affections on God through their worship. But also in their day, the, the place where you would encounter God or the place where you would expect to encounter God was the temple. And so Luke very clearly tells us that they wait in the temple. They position themselves in a place where they could encounter God. They keep their hearts correctly positioned and they physically put themselves in a place. Now, I know today we don't have temples anymore. In fact, we're the temple of God. And so I think it becomes more important around how we position our hearts in worship, how we put our hearts in places where we can wait for God and where we can expect to meet him and counter him. Sometimes that's in public gatherings. Sometimes that's alone in our prayer, prayer spaces, in the quiet of the morning or late at night. How we position ourselves is important as we wait for God. But just four quick reflections as I thought about Isaiah uh, on waiting on God. Biblical waiting means we put our faith in God, not on self-reliance. Biblical waiting means we put our faith in God, not on self-reliance. <clears throat> Biblical waiting is not a bit of, I'll wait and then God helps those who help themselves. It's not about self-effort. It's not about, okay, God, I'll give you a day to come through and, and then I'm going to sort it out myself. That's like picking up those acts of self-righteousness. They're filthy rags to God. So biblical faith means faith in God, not faith in yourself and in self-reliance. It's faith that God will act 
in his time and in his way, according to his will. Secondly, biblical faith means uh, waiting with expectation and in preparation. Waiting in expectation and with preparation. Perhaps I should have said joyous expectation if we think of this passage here in Luke. We position our hearts. Perhaps some of the preparation we need to do is, is a preparation of repentance, where we acknowledged where we've turned away from God, where we have not gladly done what he expects us to do and has called us to do. Biblical, biblical waiting is a waiting with expectation, and it's a waiting that prepares us for God to act. Biblical waiting, thirdly, is active, not passive. You know, and I think in our modern culture, waiting means sitting on a bench and seeing what somebody will do. Perhaps waiting means I'm just going to see how things happen. Biblical waiting is not passive. Biblical waiting is active. It's where I do what God expects me to do, where I seek him, where I position myself and my heart in places of worship, in places where I can encounter God. So it's gladly doing what is right, following God's ways. It's an active waiting. And lastly, biblical waiting is when we trust God and not our own self-righteousness, not our own accomplishments, not the good things we think we have done. Biblical waiting is when we trust God to do the unimaginable. We trust God to do what only God can do. We trust God to do what we don't earn. We trust God to do what we don't deserve. Simply put, we trust God to be who he is, that loving father, that faithful father. Irrespective of what's happening around us, as Pastor Louis shared last week, irrespective of tragedy, irrespective of loss, irrespective of our greatest joys and our greatest triumphs, biblical waiting is when we trust God to do what only he can do, to be that good father, the loving father, the faithful father. This is as Pastor Louis shared with us last week. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. God wants to do unimaginable good. And so as we come back to this week of prayer and fasting that we're going to embark on in this week, and as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, I'd like to read it again. Paul writes and he says, However, as it is written, quoting Isaiah, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the good things, if I may add, that God wants to do for those who love him. Isaiah adds this idea for those who will wait on him. And these things are revealed by the Spirit, Paul goes on to say. And so as we go into this week of prayer and fasting, let's wait on God. Let's love him back by waiting on him. And let's remember that his Spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus, his Spirit lives in us. And he, the Spirit will lead us and reveal what God wants to do in us and through us. One last scripture on waiting, and it's where Luke picks it up again in Acts chapter 1. And verse 4. I want to read that scripture because it speaks pertinently to what we want to focus on this week. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, it's interesting how much how many important things Jesus says in the context of fellowship and meals. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command: do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. It's that word again. Wait for the gift, my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we know later on in Acts, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, that baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit is a, Holy, is a baptism of power 
to be a witness, to live a life that is effective for God. And so also as we are waiting this week, with our hearts positioned correctly, we were leaning in and we actively waiting, not passively waiting for God in this week. Let's also trust him for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, perhaps like me, you know, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1990 was my year or 1970 or 20, 2000 or 2010. It doesn't matter when in the past you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's trust God as we wait on him this week for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in us and also through us. And part of what we're going to do this week in the evening sessions is we're going to reflect on the Holy Spirit, but particularly on Tuesday and Thursday night, we've got a team that's going to provide some teaching for us on who the Holy Spirit is and and how the Holy Spirit works. Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity, God himself that comes and lives in us and God himself that comes and empowers us. You see, we're not talking about Star Wars here where it's about the force, you know. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person. We want to learn more about him, person, third person of the Trinity. We want to learn more about him this week. And so let's trust God as we wait on him for an outpouring of the Spirit, not only in our gatherings and in our buildings and in the places where we come together, but also in our homes, in our hearts, but also, as we've spoken about so recently here at Hatfield, in our front lines. I think it's more important than ever that we have an outpouring of power, Acts 1.8, to be witnesses for God in our front lines. And so the title of my message this morning was Wait and See What God Would Do. And so let's do that not only this week, but in the weeks to come, in the days to come, in the year to come. Let's wait and see what God will do. Remember what God did for ancient Israel that Isaiah reflects on. Let's wait and see what God will do for our community. Let's remember how God acted in human history and saved us by sending Jesus Christ. Let's remember what God has done in your life and in your history where he has come through for you when you have waited for him. And let's imagine what God can do in us and through us not only in our lives and in the lives in our family, but also in our community, also in our city, also in our country, and also in the world. May God come and rend the heavens and may the nations take note of what God will do in and through his church, the body of people that have the spirit of God in them and on them to witness for him and to show that he is a good father. He is our father and we are his people. Let's pray together. Father, we trust you as we start this week of prayer and fasting that you would help us to wait well, to wait joyfully, to wait in expectation, to wait by preparing for you, to position our hearts in worship, to position ourselves in time and space so that we can encounter you. We wait also for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And won't you come and fill us again Empower us again for that which you've purposed to do in our lives and through our lives. And so we eagerly and joyfully wait on you this week, Lord Jesus. Won't you come and fill us with your Holy Spirit? I pray this in your name. Amen and amen. God bless you in the week ahead.